0: Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My very first sermon, a long time ago, I think I was 16, it was the summer when I was 16 years old, the very first sermon I ever offered was on Paul's description of the body of Christ from 1 Corinthians. Are you familiar with this text? Paul says, uh, the hand can't be the foot because the hand has its own responsibility, the foot has its own responsibility, but all of us working together, we each have a body part to be, and we together can be the body of Christ for the world. That was my text. First sermon. I can't really tell you much about the sermon except for the fact that I can tell you it wasn't very good. First of all, I was 16. I had never really thought about preaching nor given any thought to what preaching was supposed to sound like, what it was supposed to accomplish. Secondly, the scripture that I had from 1 Corinthians was difficult enough as it was beyond some 16-year-old trying to wax lyrical about it. And then thirdly, and most importantly, it was a bad sermon Because I thought it would be a great way to end by saying all of you get to be a different body part of Jesus. Think about Jesus' body. Imagine if you can what body part you get to be. Now go forth and be that body part for the world. In my head, that sounded really good. Really good. But what I didn't think about... Was that as people left church that Sunday, they weren't thinking about it in great theological terms. They were trying really hard to not think of themselves as Jesus' earlobe, or as his clavicle, or as his pinky toe, or heaven forbid, his belly button. That was my very first sermon. Jesus' very first sermon was on Isaiah 61, the text that Rick read for us. He went home to his home synagogue. He opened the scroll up and he found these words from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the captives, release to the prisoners, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. And as Scripture scripture tells us, he closed the scroll, he sat down, which is what rabbi teachers would have done during the day. He sat down and all listened, and all he said was, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing of it. And the people were so mad about what he said that Scripture tells us they stood up, they grabbed him, they threw him out of the synagogue, into the streets, and they drove him to the edge of a cliff so that they might hurl him off and murder him. I get the frustration people can have with preaching. I promise. It really wasn't all that long ago that I was on the other side of the altar like you listening to people like me. I get it. I get it. But what kind of sermon is worth killing over? Have you ever heard a sermon that made you so angry you wanted to murder the person who said it? I promise, if I'm here long enough, it might happen. But Isaiah, like Jesus, was tasked to speaking to a people who were very divided. During a time where leaders played to the powerful and the privileged, where justice was available to the highest bidder, where inequality reigned supreme. The prophet Isaiah, he attempted to bring good news to a people who believed that isolation was more important than community, where God's word was so extensive that it frightened the people that heard it such that they were frustrated, they disapproved, and they became violent. It makes me think, how can good news sound so bad? Because it's all well and fine when we hear about what God is going to do for us. But when we think about the scope of God's salvation, and we start to imagine all of those other people that God is also going to bless, it becomes a little bit harder to swallow. Isaiah paints this picture of God's work. The oppressed will hear good news. The brokenhearted will be healed. The captives will be set free. The jubilee year will begin. In other words, what he's saying is the poor and the weak, those that we drive past asking for money on the streets, they are going to be given all the power and all the strength. The people who mourn, those widows and widowers who cry every Christmas because they miss their spouse, they will be the ones that are rewarded. People in jail, we're going to release all of them, and every single debt shall be forgiven instantaneously. Now, if we were in prison, or heavily in debt, or ostracized to the outskirts of society, that would sound like pretty good news. But if we make money off of people who are in prison if we grow powerful by lending money to people with high interest rates, if we sit in places of respect and comfort, this doesn't sound like good news. This becomes bad news. The people of God during the time of Isaiah, they needed hope. They were oppressed, they were imprisoned, and they were broken hearted. And through their ruins, God said, I am going to do a new thing. I am going to bring forth new life. Your offspring, those of you who are weak, those of you who are your offspring will be known among the nations. They will be the ones who are blessed. As the Nobel Prize winning Bob Dylan puts it, Oh, these times they are a changing. But it's hard for us it's hard for us to sit with those and to side with those who are oppressed. Because we've got it pretty good. You know, we're able to come here, sit in the warmth of a sanctuary on a Sunday morning. We don't have to worry about ever being persecuted for our faith. And should something terrible happen to us, we know that we have a church that will help support us and see us through to the other side. It's difficult to read Isaiah's words because most of us have grown so comfortable with God's love, we've forgotten that God also hates. God is love, such that anything that goes against love is also against God. This text says that God hates robbery and God hates wrongdoing. God hates it when people take advantage of others. God hates injustice that's really problematic when we live in a world that rewards those with a lot of money with the least amount of effort. We reward those who prey on the weak to grow strong, and we reward those who define their own definition of justice. But this is where Isaiah hits home for people like you and me. Because on the surface, it might look like we've got it all together. But even the best among us have hidden struggles underneath the surface. There are things in our lives that we don't want anybody else to know about. Things that we try so hard to keep secret. Things we would never, ever admit. But Christmas, this season we have, it's kind of all about revealing our deepest, darkest secrets that we've kept locked away. Because in this room there are broken relationships. There are ignored addictions. There's denied depression. I hope there's not a raging affair. I hope there's not greed or hatred or fear. But if the statistics are right, they're all present in this room right now. And so with all of this bad news tucked away from prying eyes, where is the good news? Where is it? Why do we read from this text in Isaiah on the third Sunday of Advent when we light the pink candle, the joy candle? What in the world does this have to do with joy? When Jesus sat down to preach for that first time, he declared that he was the one who would bring God's transformation to the broken world. He said that in him all would be made new. He looked out at that congregation, the congregation that had raised him, That congregation, with all their hopes and all their expectations about what God would do, and He exceeded them and flipped them upside down. So, one of the challenges we have with Scripture, and in particular when we think have things like preaching, is wrestling with what and who the Word is for. Is this text from Isaiah meant for the people of his time and his time alone? Are the proclamations limited to this Sunday in Advent, to this kind of church? Who are these words for? I think that there's something more than all of that. There's another angle by which we can approach the text. Because I think it might be less about the days of Isaiah. It might be even less about the arrival in the days of Jesus. I think this text, I think it's about the already but not yet of the future. Because God most certainly sent Jesus to inaugurate a new time, a new beginning for God's people. In Christ, the good news entered the world, but the vision of hope hasn't come into fruition, at least not yet. The people receiving Jesus' first sermon, they were uncomfortable with what he had to say. They were so uncomfortable with what he had to say that they wanted to kill him. They couldn't imagine a God who would so subvert and change the priorities of existence. They were so far away from encountering a God who would resurrect his son from beyond the grave. They were, in a lot of ways, kind of like us. They had families to care for, debts to manage, secrets to keep hidden. And to hear this Jesus say that God was going to bless everyone, And in particular, the people not in the synagogue, it's hard to swallow when you think about all the problems you have. So it seems to me that we have to ask ourselves a question. If this passage, when read by Jesus, angered the people so much that they wanted to kill him, what does it say about our church today? If we were to read this and to take it seriously, to take stock of who we are and what we're doing as a church... Do we sound like the passage from Isaiah? Are we doing everything in our power to make that vision a reality? And if not, what then are we willing to do? If you look around the sanctuary here, it's 9, 20. Does this sanctuary at this time, at this place look like what Isaiah describes? Does the world around us look like this? I would hope you would say no. We still have people who are poor, who are weak, who are marginalized. We still have people who are in prison and have no hope of ever leaving. We have people who will wake up on Christmas morning with no friends and no family to wish them a Merry Christmas. And that's just scratching the surface. That's just talking about our country. The world does not yet look like what Isaiah describes. We are not there yet. My hope is that in looking around on a Sunday morning, in seeing the people who are not here, we all get a sense of how far we still need to go. Because we're not there yet. God has a vision for us. A vision for us here, a vision for Christians everywhere. God dreams about the coming future. That's why we read scripture in church. To hear about how we get to participate in God's dream for the world. Because God desires a community of faith where all are welcomed. And I promise you, all means all. It implies a day when those who mourn and those who rejoice can sit next to each other in church. Where wealthy and poor can be friends with one another. Where gay and straight can feast at the same table at the same time. Where even... Republicans and Democrats can find common ground. God dreams of the day when the ancient ruins of the past will become the foundation for a new way. Where the old can teach the young and the young can teach the old. This is done and can be done when we know and believe that God's story is more important than any other story we tell. God hopes for a day where our allegiances are not divided among a sea of desperation, but instead are directed totally toward the Lord. God yearns for the arrival of a new day where we cast away all of these idols that dominate our lives, where we replace the ashes of destruction with garlands of beauty, where justice rains down like waters. And that day will come. We know not how and we know not when, but we know that it is coming. We know that it is coming because God is, was, and always will be the Lord. And we know that it's coming because God always makes a way where there's no way. We know it's coming because even when the good news sounds like bad news, it propels us into something better than we ever could have imagined. And we know all of this. Because we know that the good news started when Jesus was born in that tiny little manger, when everything was changed forever. Because in that one moment, as Isaiah says, the Lord caused righteousness and praise to spring up from the ground in new ways and in new places. Such that even today, people like you and me, we're hearing the good news that might sound like bad news, and it changes everything. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.